This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. The 4th of March marked 100 days since Dato Sri Anwar Ibrahim became the 10th Prime Minister of Malaysia. Since taking office, the Prime Minister has promised to fight corruption, carry out democratic reforms and improve the lives of the poorest people in the nation. So how has the Prime Minister and his cabinet performed so far? Well, joining me on the show today to discuss this is Dr. Bridget Welch, Honorary Research Associate at the University of Nottingham Malaysia Asia Research Institute. Welcome to the show, Bridget. How are you? Great. It's always good to be here. Bridget, let's start with what are your overall thoughts on the Prime Minister's first 100 days? Well, first of all, I think this 100 days is a very arbitrary type of assessment, right? I think we we can look substantively at the budget. We can look at kind of how he's framing himself. Uh, uh, but I think, you know, three and a half months in a government is a very much a um, an arbitrary type of uh, marker. And also, I think because of the focus on the 100 days, there's been an emphasis on trying to have low-hanging fruit, things that they can show, uh, which, uh, and it's kind of feeds this perception that, oh, we must uh, show that that we're in government, you know, um, as opposed to um, getting down to to a, a kind of uh, real policies and everything else. So there's kind of focus on uh, um, key deliverables. Generally, however, one can look at the, the you know the hundred days as we could compare for the last series of prime ministers, and I can think it can say that it has been generally positive. Mm-hmm. But with everything, there are strengths and weaknesses. Absolutely. So let's um, go through some of them. Um, let's start with the prime minister's popularity right now. Um, as you know, Bridget Merdeka Center regularly does surveys and polls to get a sense of how Malaysians are feeling about the political landscape, parties, prime ministers, etc. So they did a survey in January and it found that 68% of Malaysians support Anwar as the Prime Minister. 68% sounds solid, Bridget, but I'm wondering if this is just a case of the first burst of excitement people usually have whenever there's a new Prime Minister. So first of all, I think, you know, one of the challenges of Malaysia's political system is that there's obsession about the personalized power of the prime minister. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think uh, this is something that is uh, a challenge, right? Uh, but of course, you know, these are measures everywhere. How popular is the president? How popular is the prime minister? And I think that um, uh, what we can see is that Anwar's numbers have increased significantly to what they were before he went into government. I think second of all, we can also see that his marker is on par with what we did find for previous prime ministers. Um, they are a little bit lower than a few, but also higher than others, right? So I think he's right in the ballpark in terms of uh, the popularity. I do think the the particular challenge that the Anwar Ibrahim faces is that he doesn't have a his own mandate in a sense that this is not about electing him. It's a it's a coalition government, right? right. And there was a, a hung parliament and split splinters and fragmentation. And so, um, you know, the real challenge is that he doesn't have the same level of a honeymoon uh, that other prime ministers might have had. Now, keep in mind that the last two prime ministers in Malaysia came in not from an election either. Right? They did no mandate. Right. So in this context, Anwar also, you know, he does have some of a mandate. And I think that um, there's a lot of goodwill among many Malaysians to see, to, to see what's happened in that context. But the, the challenge now, and this is not with Anwar, this is challenged with any prime minister, is that Malaysians are not as patient as they used to be, and they're not as forgiving as they used to be. You know, I think that there's this perception that, uh, that you know, Malaysians are a very forgiving community, especially among the Malay community. 
I don't necessarily think that's quite the same. The politics have changed. Mm-hmm. And you brought up a coalition politics, and we are indeed in a unique situation, um, you know, over the past few years, um, including right now, um, compared to the years before of, you know, Barisa National Single Party domination. And in this changing landscape where coalition politics and combining different parties to form a coalition is more normal, stability is always something that people discuss. When we look at the current landscape, um, when we look at the current opposition, the likes of um, Hadi Awang from and Prikata National as a whole are constantly talking about how this government is not stable, this government could fall anytime. And we know that when we look at whether it's foreign investors or just the general um, um, apathy that people have, whether people are feeling apathetic or people are feeling, you know, a sense of trust towards the, the institutions, it also comes down to, to stability. How stable is the Anwar government right now? And how would you describe Pakatan Harapan's relationship with its coalition partners who they have been fighting with prior, you know, some of them like GPS, like Barisa National for many years? So let's first take part of the question, Mm -hmm. which is the issue of the opposition. Right. Now, the opposition, you know, they ran on a a PN, Perkna National, run on a program of stable stability. But in fact, what is it's the hypocrisy that they are actually the the ones who are trying to promote destabilizing. They are the destabilizer publicly and they are and they have no. uh, uh, you know, no compunction in terms of continuing to continue that particular narrative. Um, but I, I do think that that said, that there are significant questions as a, as we can look at Anwar's government. Anwar's government has depended heavily on its coalition partner relationship with key major coalitions. And that in return has also depended on this kind of frenemy relationship that is highly personalized at, at very much at the elite level. Mm-hmm. So the relationship to Zahid Hamidi who continues to be a very um, controversial figure in Malaysian politics and he's facing a party election this month uh, and from not himself because he's he's taken himself out of the running uh, which is but at the same time his the the election will be a reflection on him and his leadership uh, I think that uh, also GPS which is the major part partner from Sarawak um, uh, has also has been the one that has been most played in public uh, perceptions that they might move one way or the other and there's this continuing officious of, of deal making and so forth. I think from the perspective of GPS's involvement in terms of um, uh, governance, we can see that their ministers are performing their job. Uh, they're going about the, the politics. Uh, um, and then, of course, his partners in relationship in Pakatan Harapan, particularly the most pivotal one is the DAP. And we have a kind of this new triumvirate, right, if, uh, of politics, uh, right. uh, or, or four elements, uh, four parties, GPS, DAP, PKR, and um, and uh, UMNO. Um, those relations remain strong. Mm-hmm. It's the other ones that are problematic, uh, the ones that are on the on the periphery, but make up the numbers to the two thirds. Uh, the, uh, the GRS has been shored up, uh, but GRS, of course, also traditionally has a relationship with PN. <laughs> we also see a situation where, you know, parties like Warasan or the smaller parties, they've just been ignored. Promises have not been delivered or perceptions among them uh, that party party promises have not been delivered. And, you know, with the cut in constituency allocation that to MPs, which to their constituents, not to the MPs themselves, this is actually really kind of undercut uh, the trust building that Anwar needs to do in terms of the larger number. When you only focus on the big guns and, and forget the smaller ones, it's the smaller ones that come back to bite you. 
And how do you think Anwar is overall? You, you just touched on this, but I want to expand on that a little bit. Managing, you know, these various um, political leaders, various political parties, some who have, they have been enemies, um, you know, for, for the longest of times, political enemies at least. Uh, do you think Anwar is doing a good job managing the situation, especially given, like, what you just mentioned, um, the opposition is playing an active role publicly. They they are not ashamed about it at all, trying to destabilize the current government. Well, I think you're right. They say that they're not shameful at all, mm-hmm. but about the destabilization process. But I do think, you know, that uh, let me make this very clear mm-hmm. that the relationship with the core ma- major parties is is very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I think that the government is stable in terms of numbers. And we'll see this as a big test when this later this month when the budget is to face a vote. Uh, and those will and that is a, a key indicator. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of microscopic attention on this. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that coalitions uh, often have challenges and differences uh, and and they have to work them out. And I think well, what we do see is a kind of process of trust building that is happening. Uh, you know, uh, it's not an even one. All right. And I think, you know, in particular, Anwar Ibrahim, uh, because of the type of relationship between the different pa- actors, um, there is a lot of trust building necessary. Um, and one of the, the the challenges of this government is that he's focusing on himself. Right. You know, it's in his popularity as opposed to the policies of his government uh, in this context, and so I think this is the this is a particular unique challenge uh, that is there. Um, but uh, you know, I think that you know voters want them to get back to business and to mm-hmm. and to work on the economy and and fix social protection programs and and address uh, the issues. I think uh, you know <clears throat> there's a lot of talk, uh, uh, a lot of promises, uh, and I think this is where you create space for those promises not to be fulfilled. Uh, and, the, and and this is a lesson from Pakistan 1.0. You know, you had a huge manifesto and then people started poking holes of the things that you said you didn't deliver, right? Now we have a lot of commentary uh, and then people poke holes on this. I mean, so for example, let me give you an illustration. Hmm. His interview about Sabah in the Philippines, uh, you know, did not go very well among Sabahans because he wasn't uh, properly emphatic about that Sabah is part of Malaysia. Right. Clear. Very clear. You know, Sabah is Malaysia. Period. No contestation, Mm -hmm. no nothing else. Sudah. You know, you, you can't please your audience. You have to be focused on your principles. And so this is not about the Philippines. This is about Malaysia. Anwar's brand, um, Reform Masi brand, is centered around two ideas, right? Fighting against corruption and for democratic reforms. This is what he's been and his party and by a larger extent, Pakatan Harapan Coalition. They have been championing this for many, many years. How do you think Anwar and his administration have fared so far with regard to these areas? Well, I think, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of talk uh, and and the agenda continues to to raise and talk about reformasi and it's a little bit challenging for people who are looking at issues of corruption to see people in the cabinet that are facing corruption charges. right okay there there is um the sense of uh of you know there's no clear priorities of what the agenda is i note however uh, you know after the 100 day commentary and uh, and this issue about whether or not reforms are substantive the reform minister did have a press statement yesterday that came out with the list of reforms that are being resolved and are addressed and uh, including for example the two terms for prime minister and uh, the political funding bill and i think uh, you know uh, these are important steps, uh, uh, and I think that 
the question, however, is timing and deliverables, right, in these particular areas. We have a very long session in Parliament, and uh, these bills have not, none of these bills have been put forward. Uh, you know, the issues of citizenship for young, for women uh, who have been denied the, the right to pass on their citizenship to their children because they're overseas has been promised, but also not delivered yet. Uh, so I think people are still in very much the wait and see. Uh, um, and I, I, this is not to say there aren't reforms on the cards. There are. But the the question, however, is that whether or not these reforms, uh, which are, you know, are the f- reforms that are that are necessarily to be prioritized from the perspective of very um, meaningful um, uh, shifts and changes. Uh, you know, citizenship, yes, this is going to impact people. But the two-term prime minister, yes, it matters in terms of the system, but in terms of how it affects people, the, given how prime ministers are changing in Malaysia, uh, they're not even making it to one term. Right. <laughs> On the show with me today is Dr. Bridget Welch, Honorary Research Associate at the University of Nottingham Malaysia Asia Research Institute. After the break, I ask her if there are any ministers who have either exceeded expectations or underperformed. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dr. Johan. And on the show with me today is Dr. Bridget Welsh. She's an honorary research associate at the University of Nottingham Malaysia Asia Research Institute. And we're talking about Anwar's first 100 days as the Prime Minister of Malaysia. So, Bridget, I think you bring out a fantastic point, right? Because um, ultimately, what people on the ground, what they want to know is bread and butter issues. Are their lives going to improve? So with that in mind, what are your thoughts on Anwar Ibrahim's first budget? There was a lot of hype um, because, again, the first reformist prime minister in Malaysian history. What is his budget going to look like? So on and so forth. Do you think it addressed um, key issues surrounding bread and butter issues, rising um, cost of living, unaffordable housing, a healthcare system that's on the verge of, of a crisis? Do you think his budget did enough to address these issues? Well, I think, you know, it's not just about bread and butter issues. Mm-hmm. There are other things that affect people's lives, particularly, for example, the questions of, of dealing more more holistically with issues of corruption, right. uh, for example. Uh, but in terms of the budget, I think, you know, the budget is like the old formula. I mean, it was almost as if uh, we had the uh, an UMNO finance minister come into office, and uh, and I think we we there are parallels there. I mean, I think we saw a list. Um, now there are some very good things in the in the budget. Uh, they've tried to you know to. Uh, uh, Put an emphasis and change the emphasis from on uh, kind of B40. Uh, we, we can argue about that particular terminology, but but it is a sense that it's about a progressive policies that focus on the most that are that are needed. But it, it but we can argue about how they're going about that, right? Which is that um, uh, there is the sense of focus on you know continuing to have handouts or specific programs. These are many of these are short term measures as opposed to uh, you know thinking about new policies or new interpretations to discuss policies. Um, you know, my concern with the budget was that I think that the revenue numbers may be overestimated. And I think that the expenditure included off-budget items that I think are uh, traditionally not part of a budget uh, in that context. So I think it's the budget is kind of framed in particular sets of ways. And, and, and importantly, I don't see how the budget is helping, uh, you know, is geared towards stimulating the economy uh, and, and help in particularly addressing the economy recovery or 
or there even I don't see clear pictures of what type of policies are going to be put in place. Now, let's go back to what I said in the very beginning of the program. This is only three months, right? right. So the, so it, it is and it's expected that those in the system would drive it and that you can't revolve and, and fundamentally transform the system um, uh, in, in a short period of time. Uh, you know, it is the same type of uh, bureaucrats who are forming a budget, which is, you know, kind of let's let's have it as a political a political tool uh, as opposed to a, a meaningful policy tool. And so, you know, my my uh, perspective would be that we, we need to wait to see for the next sets of budgets and, this, and the policies that come out in, in the period of time. But I do think one has to call the fact that this particular budget doesn't have a clear policy direction, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, you you create a gap of a credibility gap when you keep talking about reformasi reformasi and there is no substance to that reformasi in the budget <laughs> the budget is not a reform budget the budget is a, a, a budget that talks about reform but follows the pattern of the past right um in your article on Between the Lines, where you also talked about the first 100 days of uh, Anwar Ibrahim, you wrote something that I like to quote, something very uh, interesting. And you said Anwar is focused on trying to win over those who did not vote for him while ignoring many of those who did, end quote. Could you expand on this a little bit more for me? So in Pakatan Harapan 1.0 under Mahathir, Mahathir was obsessed about winning the support of the Malay community. Of course, this is not a surprise given how Mahathir conceptualizes the world and his politics from the 60s right, in that area. But the impact of that was that they, there was an erosion of support among traditional Pakatan Harapan supporters, which right. were, were predominantly non-Malay, but not exclusively. There were a lot of urban Malays who also supported that government. And so, you know, they were trying to want the other side, right, the side that didn't support them. And of course, since Mahathir came from the other side, he really you know, was not comfortable in the in a new new place, uh, and so policies that involve the particularly the community concerns of the Indian community of the Chinese community, were, you know, received no priority um, in, in that context. And I think uh, Anwar faces the same sets of challenges. You know, the question is, how do you shore up your political base? What type of strategy should you take? And I think here are some very interesting strategies that we see Anwar has done. Um, and and I am taking issue with the fact that you know I think that the core supporters, which they're kind of we can group them in different ways, right? Uh, are reformasi uh, oriented for his political base, and uh, uh, number one, number two, um, there are um, uh, you know people who are non-Malays. Uh, I mean, I, uh, my ethnic voting support will come out um, uh, later this week, mm -hmm. and what we can see, you know, that ninety. 97, 95 percent of the Chinese community that voted, not everyone voted, but because uh, they had less turnout, voted for Pakatan Harapan. Um, and 80, over 80 percent of the Indian community did as well. Right. Um, there are no programs to address the concerns of the Indian community. And I think they want to move away from talking about the Indian community. But the fact is, the politics and the realities are that there are particularly unique circumstances that the Indian community faces. And there are particular issues that the Chinese community also faces. And so, you know, you have a political base that's based on ethnic politics and if you if you choose not if you choose to ignore them then these are the base that will leave and we saw that in in Malacca state elections and Johor state elections uh, as a, as an illustration uh, and uh, the same thing in terms of the reformasi base you know when you when you you talk about issues of somsa and you begin to you know uh, to talk 
like you're not that you're not a hot reform government, right. then, you know, you begin it, it begins to to erode. And 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 and, you know, you need your base before you can build it from that base. Um, and I think that the choices that, you know, if you take your base for granted, uh, I think the lesson in recent politics is that they go away uh, and you have to keep winning them back. Uh, now, the, it's a matter of timing, right? And I think what's different now is that we have a situation where there is another, right? So therefore, the assumption is that they're going to stay because they have no choice. And I think that's probably to a certain degree true. But at the same juncture, um, they can choose to just not come out right. <laughs> or they can choose to uh, not. And those numbers in what will be very close contests in state elections will matter. And I think, you know, your base doesn't need much, but you need to give them something that. It, and I think this is the question uh, you ignoring them at your own peril. Um, and, you know, we can look from the you know, people, politics of other countries and others, you know, we ask ourselves in very polarized context as Malaysia is, you know, how do you maintain your support? Do you try to, is this a tactical thing? Do you support your poll? Do you go to the middle ground? Do you try to uh, win the other side? Uh, I think, you know, what we have seen is that um, there is, the middle ground is not as big as people think it is. Um, and uh, there has been a primacy of caution because they don't want to strengthen the other poll. But in fact, this is a, you know, the question is, when does a caution become immobility uh, and when do it comes to when do you lose the opportunity for you to be able to make those changes that we are, that your political base is expecting you to make um, it seems to me that, and many others have pointed this out as well, that you know, in interviews, in, in some of his speeches, Anwar is using the same rhetoric um, in the name of managing temperatures or, or trying to cool down the political landscape or manage the opposition. He, in turn, uses the same rhetoric as the um, right-wing conservative opposition-based uh, base, which is um, anti-secularism and things like that. And, and when he says these things, um, people who seemingly are Pakatan Harapan supporters come on and say, but this is why we voted for you. We voted for you because you would stand up for secularism. For example, he talks about other things as well, LGBT rights and, and so on and so forth, right? How do you think Anwar is managing this whole idea of standing by his principles or what his party and coalition have championed for the longest time and also managing the temperatures? They always like to talk about real politics. How, how do you think Anwar is managing all of that? Well, it goes back to the point I made earlier is that he he's trying to appeal to a base that won't support him. <laughs> but at the same time, it's corroding the base that might that continue to support him now. But at the same time, we'll come to a point where they might not to the same degree. Uh, and I think, you know, no question, Anwar Ibrahim faces a very difficult time. And he and keep in mind that he's very much shaped by the politics of the past, uh, you know, where, you know, it's you can see the patterns of trying to build this personality. It's about, the government is about Anwar. Well, the fact is the government is not about Anwar. The government is about Malaysians. Right? And then I think that there are, um, you know, and so you that's a politics of the past, right? Building this kind of personality type of element. Uh, um, and also the tactics of sort of saying someone to try to please certain groups, uh, you have a situation where you can't speak to different audiences anymore. It's one audience uh, in terms of, and I think it, there's a lot that's been said. So therefore, there's it's hard to get through the noise to figure out which is the priorities of the things that our people are, are speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and I think this is the challenge, right? Is that uh, is to is to focus on what those priorities are. You know, you, you know, 
You can't please everyone. And nobody does. No government does. The, the question is, do you please them enough that it, and, and you and you move in the right directions? Uh, and I think you raise questions about what principles are. Well, I mean, it's not so clear what those principles are when you talk for multiple different audiences and different types of narratives. And so people have, uh, you know, they they continue to have tremendous goodwill, uh, a large a large section of the society. And no question, I think that the overwhelming majority wants, wants the government to be strong, to be effective, to move in directions. I mean, of course, we have some destabilizers notwithstanding, but the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, Malaysia is always stronger together when, when there, there is government that is focused on governing uh, in that context. So I think, um, you know, what we do see is a very challenging task, uh, uh, but also at the same time, uh, a situation where it's hard to figure out um, which of these challenges is more important to Henri Ibram than others. Absolutely. Um, I want to also switch gears and talk about some of the short-term initiatives that has been put forth by the administration, such as Manu Rahma. What do you um, think about this? Because these are, of course, not long-term solutions to poverty and, and whatnot. But in the short term, do you think they um, they address um, um, the situation on the ground? Do you think it does? Um, it, it, it could accomplish its objectives? I think there's three things about Menurama that I think mm-hmm. are really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one is that it sets a priority of focusing on trying to make food more affordable. Right. Uh, uh, number two, I think it's a a private public you know, public-private sector cooperation. And I think this is, um, you know, in itself an important uh, way of engaging. Uh, You know, you have a a different type of modus operandi. It's not just about all the favorite cronies. It's really about trying to create social, genuine social responsibility um, and to set in place a program that is, um, that I think, uh, you know, is addressing a need. Uh, and and number three, I think that you know it, it is um, it, it talks about openly about the pro- the problems of inequality uh, and the problems that are being faced. And this is a real serious issue. It's not just about food security or a new types of partnership, but it's also about uh, you know putting your attention and lens. And just now I spoke about priorities. This is an illustration of the priorities mm-hmm. uh, in this context. Uh, um, and the challenge, however, is now to move this into something that is more sustainable. Right. Uh, and to and to think about how to navigate uh, policies on food security, and I think you know in this area generally, such as the co- the recalibration of Bernas uh, and uh, in terms of the payment back, uh, the the focus of attention. I think the Anwar government needs to be given considerable credit. Uh, it's not just about Renurama; it is about a focus, a greater focus on food security uh, and making food more affordable. And this is not an easy thing to do, given the prices, the sticker shock that we see across the world. Bridget, I want to talk to you about something that is incredibly heartbreaking. Many states are once again going through massive floods. In Johor alone, more than 40,000 people have been affected. 40,000. And this is seemingly becoming the new normal, right? I, I hate to use the word new normal, but it seems like this is becoming the new norm in Malaysia because of the way we have built our cities, um, our responses to climate to climate change, to climate crisis. Um, it's not even November, December right now. I mean, floods happening in November, December is still unacceptable, but it, it's March, right? Floods are getting more frequent. What are your thoughts on the way um, the Anwar administration has been handling the flood situation? Look, um, you know, when we start thinking about flooding as normal, that's part of the problem. Hmm. 
and from the onset. Huh? Right. Second of all, um, well, you know, if the solutions is all about giving aid and, you know, the prime minister is the one giving aid as opposed to the MPs uh, who have local knowledge and, and have connections on the ground and work through local and give the money to local NGOs. Um, you know, I think it's it's really not about who's giving the aid and, and this person getting credit versus that person credit. It's about putting in place uh, holistic policies. Now, obviously, this is disaster crisis management. One can argue about whether or not one's to one's to escalate that to an emergency level and to bring attention to it or just to kind of get with the business. I think that the minute if we don't escalate these issues and to recognize that they're very serious, I think we do a disservice. But the question, however, is not just about, you know, focusing on, um, you know, ameliorating these issues, you know, when I saw the pictures of, of uh, uh, Sagamat uh, and Bekok, uh, which are both places that I have spent a lot of time in the last year, um, you know, during the Johor elections and subsequently uh, in the PRN, PRG 15, I visited both. You know, and I'm thinking, you know, I drove through those areas and, right. and I saw during GE 15 the flood problems that were already there, um, you, know, you know, four or five months ago. You know, what point do these things become a question of where you have to recognize you need a, a very different type of approach. Right. It's not just about platitudes and you know saying, oh, there's climate change and flooding is normal and we have lots of rain. Yeah, we know all of that. Uh, mm -hmm. It's about creating a task force and creating a, a meaningful sets of priorities and thinking about how to allocate those resources. I do believe there's tremendous uh, goodwill and tremendous um, you know uh, focus of wanting to recognize this. Huh? But I also think that uh, you know the approach is not working and this is another wake-up call that it's not working and that and you know part of that has to be some relief and insurance for flood victims and and, and the private sector has to begin to start uh, you know recognizing and and putting pressure so that the policies that are put in place to reduce these sets of floods uh, you know no community should have to be having to undergo regular trauma uh, as we do see on repeated areas and you know it, the last huge crisis in terms of flooding was in 2006 huh? That was a long time ago. Right. And what why and why is this continuing in twenty twenty three? It's getting worse and, and you're right, you know, we cannot we cannot just accept as this as the new normal, right? We need the government needs to move and we need to take serious approaches to, to curbing the floods, you know, from happening in the future. I think it's not just the responsibility of government. It's mm -hmm. the responsibility of business community and the right. opposition and multiple levels of mm -hmm. government. And this is a whole, a different way of engaging. You need a task force, a major national task force on flooding amelioration. And, and you need to listen to professionals, the, the, the scientists and the, and the people who know and have the data uh, to deal with these areas. And, uh, you know, parliament should be hearing from here, holding hearings on this and listening uh, to this to talk about what, what are some of the sets of solutions. It can't just be in uh, pockets of Selengo or others. You know, we should hear from people in Klantan. We should hear from people in Sabah and Sarawak, where, where the flooding there does not get reported, but is as, as serious as it is anywhere else in the country. Are there any ministers or ministries that you'd like to highlight who have either underperformed or exceeded all expectations? Well, let's focus on the positive as mm -hmm. opposed to the negative right. in terms of emphasizing. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, it's the quiet ones that I often think are the ones that are never, the ones that are not in the news. And there's some people who are not on the news because they're not doing anything. And there are others <laughs> who are not in the news because they're getting about their business. Right. You know, in the article I highlighted, Nancy Shukri, for example, her issues on issues of women and family. And we can see that there's some policies that are already being meeting, discussed on issues of children uh, and, uh, and issues I mentioned earlier about the questions of citizenship. All of that comes from that 
ministry. And of course, this is the month of uh, women's uh, mm-hmm. recognition, Women's Day. And, and and I think that, you know, I think this is something very important to highlight uh, that in that context. We have a very different type of government looking at gender issues compared to the previous one. Second, I would say that, you know, um, it's interesting to look at uh, Chang Kang, uh, who is uh, at the Science and Technology Mostly Ministry. Uh, compare that to, you know, the kind of the flash of a, of a, of a Kyrie Jamaluddin. Right. You know, sometimes it's sometimes it's a, it's the quiet conversations and the meetings in the town halls uh, that actually start to think about, hey, what can uh, move Malaysia's economy in a much more vibrant, uh, dynamic way? And how do you move towards bringing and integrating data um, in, in, a, in a particular interesting uh, particular conversations? And it's the same minister, for example, who, who took on Linus uh, and uh, said, hey, wait a minute, you haven't followed this particular bill or the particular measure before. And, and, and it took a position. And I think this that was handled well because it wasn't from Anwar, right? It came from a minister, right? It, it, it reflect and it was a position from a minister. So I think right. that was something that was actually managed in a way that what, what is what we see a, a lot of other places is that a ministry with a particular focus, focus on those sets of policies. Um, Azalina, for example, is also coming out uh, on issues of reform. Um, I, I think she's busy also politicking for uh, the vice presidency <laughs> uh, in the next few weeks. But that said, I also see that, you know, there focuses on institutional reforms and there's been a whole series of meetings again quieter uh, but at the same time getting to business although I think Azalin is a little less quiet than some of the others <laughs> Before we wrap this conversation up Bridget would you have some final thoughts and also um, whenever I interview you about these topics I like to get a grade um, how, how would you grade I know like you said early days 100, 100 days is not the best gauge of how a government has been performing. We need to give them a little bit more time and space. But so far, what grade would you give the Anwar administration? Well, to me, when I grade, I look at the entire semester. I don't necessarily look at just the first week. And we're not right. even at midterm right. in that Absolutely. context in terms of the assessment. Um, I think that, you know, where what are the markers um, we can look at? We're going to look at see uh, uh, the, the budget and we mm-hmm. can see that as an area. Uh, we're going to see with um, um, those elections and the state elections, you know, um, I, I think it's it's definitely above average. <laughs> uh, 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 but I think there's there's areas to improve. improve. So I put it at this point in the B range, um, but with the hopes, hopeful hopefulness that A being coming from Anwar, being his first name in A, can move it into the A range. Absolutely. And on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Most welcome. That was Dr. Bridget Welch, Honorary Research Associate at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia, Asia Research Institute. If you missed any part of our conversation, do check us out on podcasts. We are available on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever we get your podcasts from. You just have to look up Beyond the Ballot Box podcast. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.